Hello and welcome to Downstream. I'm Ash Sarker and today I'm going to be talking to China Mieville, author of A Spectre Haunting, a new book on the Communist Manifesto, and also the brain behind the city in the city, Embassy Town, Perdido Street Station. We're going to talk about sadism, communism and longing for something better than what we've got. Hope you enjoy. Welcome, China, to the Navarra studio. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. Um, we're here to talk about your new book, A Spectre Haunting, but I have a feeling that we are going to range a little bit outside of that terrain as well. But to kick us off, could you maybe tell us what communism is? <laughs> oh, how long do we have? I mean, one of the, I mean, the book starts quite early on saying this is highly contested, you know, so it would be ridiculous to say, well, here's the definition and now we all agree. But I think, you know, broadly speaking, in, highly contested, including among its advocates, obviously. But I suppose- No one fights like the left. <laughs> yeah, well, quite. Um, but I think, I mean, at, at a very, very base level, I suppose, for me, what it is about is uh, grassroots democratic management of society and production, um, that therefore, as part of that, prioritizes human need over profit. And if you want nothing else, that I suppose would be my kind of, my very baseline. Why is it that every time you talk about being a communist, I'm not just talking about you, I'm talking about yeah. the kind of, you know, grander you, you're made to feel like a dog that has defecated on a prized family rug. Yeah. Well, you're very used to this being one of the one of the poster children for for being a communist um, publicly. I mean, we can make jokes about it, but it is actually really depressing because I think I mean I, I would be tempted to say that there's two baseline answers. For years, one of the one of the key answers was Stalinism and the the situation of Stalinism, and that I think was a a real issue and something mm. to be taken seriously and. Of course, the right wing always essentially acted as if the left wasn't engaging with this issue, which was bad faith bullshit. But it was nonetheless, when you have this enormous global power that is saying we are communists and that is doing things that most of us would not be supporting, and that I think has nothing to do with democratic grassroots management of production and society, then it's not surprising to be generous that people are immediately anxious about the term. Now, What's interesting to me now is that in the decades since the collapse of, of official communism, if you like, um, among, uh, among a lot of people, and I do think this is not quite as bad as it used to be, but nonetheless, among a lot of people, one still has a, a lot of that kind of knee-jerk thing. And I don't quite know why it is. And I think part of it is, you know, I think it's a conglomeration of various things. I think it's the kind of effects of, you know, what Mark Fisher called capitalist realism mm. and this sense that, you know, even if that would be lovely, it's just prima facie ridiculous. Why are we even talking about it? And then on the kind of, as you go further right, it would be nice to think that people are so dismissive about it because it's a threat. Actually, I think a lot of people are dismissive about it because it's just, as I say, prima facie absurd. And one of the things that's depressing about that to me is the lack of intellectual curiosity, if nothing else. Mm. Like I would, I mean, people think that I'm saying this as a provocation. Totally sincerely, I would relish a good faith, serious debate with an interested right-wing interlocutor, a conservative who's like taking these ideas seriously, taking ideas to cure seriously. But I think it's a combination nowadays of many, many years of accreted political attacks mm. because we have we live in a right-wing culture, which obviously has a kind of 
um, has an instrumentalism for, for the ruling elite, but also just a kind of complete degradation of kind of political culture where a lot of people who should know better are just not even interested in this in the abstract. So I find that lack of curiosity really depressing. Well, not to maybe repeat some of the more nightmarish interactions you've had with it, but how do you separate the ideas of communism, which you've just espoused, which is grassroots democratic management of all the things that we need to yeah. survive, it tends to be how I phrase it, um, from its actual imposition in the Soviet Union or yeah. in China or in Cuba or North Korea? How do you achieve that separation or is it even yeah. desirable to do so? Well, I, I mean, yes, I think it is desire. I think it's very important. And as as I say in passing in the book, that there are literally decades of really thoughtful discussion on the left about this. And again, in terms of the intellectual lack of curiosity, when right-wingers say, well, you know, go back to Russia, go back to North Korea, I sort of think, you know, I can't make you a communist, but as a matter of intellectual integrity, you should at least be interested in the fact that there's been a debate about mm. this on your among your opponents for years. Um, I mean, the, the, the book is primarily concerned with the manifesto itself, so I'm not going to pretend that mm. I go into detail on this. But certainly, I think, you know, um, the, the the failure of the of the Russian Revolution, the um, ultimately the the, the well, the, fa the failure because it's kind of encircled, and the failure of the German Revolution, and the fact ultimately, I think that these polities, whatever their intentions, whatever their aspirations are competing, mm. certainly materially, but also in various other spheres, on what is a kind of hegemonically capitalist mm. um, world system. So and what's I, hegemonically mean maybe for someone who is not familiar with the word? The fact that they're competing in a capitalist world system mm -hmm. um, means, I think, that they are subject to the, these kind of pressures of competitive accumulation, mm -hmm. in, in, you know, which ultimately, whether or not it's thought of in terms of profit, is, is achieving the same kind of thing where you mm. have to have a kind of management that is absolutely not prioritizing human need. You've got to put people and resources through the meat grinder right. of production. Right. And I'm here bracketing a lot of debates about, you know, what exactly was the Soviet mm. Union and so on. Not because I don't think they're interesting. I think they're fascinating, but because that's not the prime issue mm -hmm. here. Um, and so I think, you know, and then we can get more, we can go further down and talk about the specific nature of the, the politics of the Western communist parties and so on. But as a baseline, I think because any aspiration for that kind of democratic um, management mm -hmm. has been encircled by a system that would not allow it even to experiment, let alone to flourish and flower. So for me, that is the base of a lot of the issues in the in the notionally communist countries. So let's turn to the manifesto itself, because right in the Great. beginning, you talk about every political generation having to encounter it yeah. anew. What was your first encounter with the communist yeah. manifesto? And what was the political moment that you were a part of at that time? Yeah. Honestly, I should come up with a better story about my own encounter, because my, own enc my first encounter with the manifesto was not particularly sort of it wasn't particularly kind of bolt from the blue or anything i was just you know i was at university in the early 90s the very early 90s and i was reading lots of stuff and i was on the left but not i would say now not on the kind of the, the marxist left mm -hmm. and 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 was reading it with kind of as much of an open mind as possible i would be lying if i said that it had hit me like a thunderbolt the one exception to that is there's a part early in the kind of extensive second section 
where the authors suddenly start addressing the bourgeoisie mm. and they say, you accuse us of wanting to get rid of your property. That is exactly right. And I found <laughs> that really amazing. I still get goosebumps thinking about that moment. So that line really hit with me. Um, but taking it seriously as a, not that I thought it was a frippery, but sort of really relating to it as not just an important document, but a document that still contains sort of really sort of powerful analyses and so on. That came later um, after sort of many years of, um, of engagement with the left. I think you talk in this book about the swagger of yeah. the Communist Manifesto. Yeah. And I remember reading it, I was 14 and I two things had happened. One was my mom had gotten me to read Black Skins, White Masks. Mm -hmm. And so there are all of these Marxist terms and I didn't know what yeah. they meant. So I thought, okay, got to go back and read the OG. And then the second thing was that I really wanted the boy who worked in the bookshop to fancy me. And so I thought that if I sort of lurked mm -hmm. around like the political philosophy shelves that maybe um, he would be hit like a bot from the blue. Unfortunately, it never happened. Um, but then I opened it and it was not the book I expected. I thought it would be something which I would have to work hard to feel yeah. grabbed by. And then suddenly it's this kind of like, it, it felt like when you're listening to like Nas do ether for the first mm. time, there is something muscular and swaggering and unapologetic about it. Um, how essential is is thinking about mood and yeah. vibe when, when you're reading this text? I mean, let me ask you, did, did you kind of come away from that initial reading, like having gone to your first good rap concert and being like, that's it, I'm in? Or did it sort of then sort of percolate over the years a bit more? I think it was two things. Um, one is yes, because I definitely read it and I was like, bars. And then I encountered it again at university in the context of a literature degree. Right, right. And suddenly you know why it's working on you in the way that it is. Right. Well, that's, I think that's really important. And I think that's one of the things, I'm, I'm really glad you've raised this because I think what doesn't get talked about nearly enough is precisely the manifesto as literature and as a manifesto, which is a whole literary form, which I try and talk about a bit. And there's a danger of this because there's a danger that if you talk about this, it becomes a kind of domestication and a depoliticization. And it's sort of like, you know, this week we're doing Southey and Wordsworth, next mm. week we're doing, you know, not that I have anything against Southey or Wordsworth, but <laughs> I think... I think it is really important to relate to this political tract, which is what it is, as also a piece of literature of a particular genre and form that works the way it, it, it does because it is great literature of a particular genre and form. And th therefore, for it, it, its kind of literary form and its political arguments, I think, are, are inextricable. And I think that that swagger that you're talking about, and um, particularly, I think, in that section, mm. um, is, is intoxicating. And some people are very skeptical about this and they talk about it as kind of, you know, rhetoric as if he's kind of, you know, sort of brainwashing people. Mm. And, and I, think that's, I think that's quite wrong. I think that's very um, sort of unsophisticated reading of the way rhetoric works. And conversely, a lot of the critics, uh, including on the left, um, and I should say also some of the partisans on mm. the left, read it sort of bracketing all these issues of language and stuff and treat it almost like a kind of history textbook or something, which I also think leads to misreadings. So one of the key things I would really like to do is say, whether, whether you end up you know, impressed by it or not, whether you end up agreeing with it or, or not, read it with the kind of rigorous critical generosity that befits any text and particularly any literary text, you know. So what is the difference between like a manifesto and a treatise? What yeah. is this text doing that yeah. other texts maybe weren't? 
Well, I mean, I suppose we have to do a caveat, which is to say that there's no sharp lines between literary forms. So, I, you know, I don't think any text operates like maths. You know, they mm -hmm. all have a certain degree of, you know, sort of um, of ambiguity and ambivalence and playfulness and so on. But I think the manifesto, I think manifestos in general, they they have a whole chapter about this. You know, they revel in a certain kind of playfulness, a certain kind of swagger, partly enjoying the language as a sort of performance. They're highly performative. But it's also a performance that attempts to do something in the world. So, for example, I can give you an example. So mm. when, when, you know, uh, when Marx and Engels say the working class has no country. Mm. Now, there's a, there's a right-wing attack on this, which is to say, well, clearly loads of working class people do associate with their country, so the manifesto is wrong. Bang. And then there's um, and then there's a kind of very, uh, this is much less of a big problem, I should say, but there is a sort of reductive left thing, which is to say, so see, you know, all we need to do is just not worry about nationalism because we don't have a country. It's like, mm -hmm. no, that partly what that is, you know, is that prophecy? Is that exhortation? Mm -hmm. Is that critique? Partly, I think, along with various other scholars, that Marx and Engels are saying this precisely because there is nationalism among the working class. And they're saying, stop this, stop this, you know. And then you can still say, as I would, that they underestimate the power of nationalism among the working class. But the fact that that sentence can't be read as a straightforward truth claim, it's a performative intervention. And that doesn't mean whitewashing or sort of, you know, giving them carte blanche for saying anything. You can still say this is wrong, this doesn't work, etc., etc. But if you don't sort of approach the text with, as I say, a kind of sort of ruthless but comradely generosity about what it actually is, how it's doing these things, then even if you're a critic, surely you want to criticize your opponents at their strongest, not their weakest. So that, for example, is one of the ways that I think a manifesto operates as a political argument that a, that a textbook about political sociology wouldn't. There are so many moments in this book where you are looking at particular phrases which are used in the Communist Manifesto, which have been taken as predictions which yeah. then failed, and you're trying to go, okay, but actually, what is this? Is this a prediction or is this something we want to happen? How much did you find yourself having to ventriloquize Marx and Engels and make a claim of knowing what they're thinking? And how did you do it? Was it simply all there in the language or were you drawing on other sources? I think I mean I mean I think I have to draw on other sources to a degree as far as possible I make it uh, as as kind of focused on the manifesto itself but I would also I would want to tweak slightly your formulation because the question of intent mm. it's not you know what they actually intend is not it's not meaningless and it's mm. important particularly when their intent is I think is being misrepresented but like you know you're a literature student you know um I mean you know the what the author intends is only one part of the story. Mm -hmm. So there are certainly times, for example, when I, I might say, and also intent itself is is very ambiguous. We, mm. we can intend more than one thing at once. We can intend things that are contradictory. I never know my intentions until the wrong thing happens. Exactly. This is like this, that, you know, this advice to writers, like, you know, know your characters. I don't know myself. How am I <laughs> supposed to, you know? Um, but in this case, so for example, there might be places where I would say, you know, um, uh, Marx and Engels, you know, appear to to be meaning this and thinking this. Whether or not they do, I'm going to say this is this is what the text itself is claiming. Whether or not that's right, you know what I mean. Um, but I I don't want to say that what they actually mean is 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 unimportant. Um, because I, I think there's a difference between being somewhat um, contradictory and 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 being unimportant. So, you know, when you talk about the question of inevitabilism, there is. 
there are plenty of places where they talk in a kind of inevitableist language that I think is ultimately unhelpful. But often, and I'm not going to sit here and say, yeah, but they didn't mean that. They didn't mean that. Partly because that's unfalsifiable. Partly because I have no idea what they you know, meant and didn't mean. Partly because, as you say, like most of us, they probably mean more than one thing at once. What I am going to say is if you read this book, the manifesto, I mean, mm. you know, rigorously and generously, but critically, what the only conclusion you can come to is that they mean this, but they kind of also mean this. And therefore, while you may criticize this aspect of this, this other aspect is 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 fairly persuasive and is not normally talked about and so on. So I, I definitely don't see myself as wanting to be a ventriloquist. I want to be a sort of, um, I want to be generous and comradely, but non-hagiographical and mm. critical. One of the things that um, you say in this book, and it was one of those real moments where it suddenly connected um, different bits of my brain and synapses were firing, which hadn't before, is you draw a relationship between the Communist Manifesto and religious yeah. pamphleteering. And mm. it suddenly made sense of a lot for me, particularly the language of apocalypse and almost yeah. like biblical revelation. Like there is a set of events waiting in the wings and they will unfold. Do you think that people on the left have a religious relationship to the communist manifesto and if they do is that a helpful political mode in which to mm. encounter the text well i'm gonna be really annoying and say it depends what you mean um oh. but but i certainly but in my defense i'm certainly not saying no absolutely not mm -hmm. you know i mean i think the idea that the Marx is a religious prophet um, and the manifesto is a religious text is 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 often thrown around usually by the right. And one of the things I'm trying to say in this, as as you say, is rather than simply saying no, 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 it's saying, well, according to a certain way of approaching religion, yeah, absolutely. This is a text about apocalypse. You know, and I think I don't have a problem with I am I'm I'm fascinated with religion both in its own terms. I'm fascinated and respectful towards and and learn a lot from religion both in its own terms and as a kind of, you know, cultural and social phenomenon. And I think I think that um for me it's very hard to talk about the world at the moment without having a sense of the kind of lived reality of apocalypse. Um, um and, you know, famously apocalypse, you know, the rending of the veil, it's an uncovering as well as a catastrophe, you know. And I think that I don't think there's any question that this is an apocalyptic text and a text that is about, among other things, redemption and the end of the world and a new beginning and the kingdom of God, you know. And there are so many texts which follow on, like Wretched of the Earth, which yeah. then really embrace that language of apocalypse. So yeah. what is decolonization, it is no less than a program of total disorder. Right, right, right. And I and 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 you know the word that I obsess about in this book that um that Engels in particular uses, but they both use is rupture. You know, this mm. is about rupture. You know, this is more or less an, an explicitly apocalyptic way of thinking of the world. And I I you know I'm really interested in the kind of the affective elements of politics. Um and I think that the model of politics that we have whereby, you know, some people, particularly on the left, I would say, see, you know, you've basically either got rational politics or you've got irrational politics. And I, I think that's a very stunted view of reality. And I think there's a whole third form that I would, I would, you know, after the writer Rudolf Otto, I would call the non-rational, or we think about as the affective and the aesthetic sort of bundled together. And this is, I don't think, irrational. And I think it's absolutely constitutive of being human, 
no less than these other two, mm. but no, but you know, but 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 uh, but it is as well. And I think part of what you talk about in terms of the language and this kind of incredible rush of rhythm and the poetry of this is precisely about trying to tap into, um, you know, this sense of of catastrophe uh, and catastrophe because because we are, you know, living an ongoing catastrophe even more so now than than when it was written. I mean, so say you're talking directly to, you know, a 16, 17 year old who, like me, is sort of lurking around the bookshelves and maybe they don't have an idea of themselves as being a particularly critical or yeah. rigorous or interrogative or yeah. generous reader. Um, what would you advise them in terms of how they encounter the Communist Manifesto? I mean, I... <laughs> In a way, you know, obviously in this book, I'm focused very heavily on the manifesto because that's what the book's about. But in a way, I think I say at one point, like, you know, it, it deserves to be read like any other text. Like, it's mm. like, I don't think this is just advice about the manifesto. I would hope this is advice about all texts. You know, all texts have unconsciouses. They have contradictions. Mm. They have they have bad spirits. They have guilt. They, you know, they have what they say, what they really mean, what they don't want to mean, what they're upset, you know. It, and and I, I think what I would say is, you know, every text should be read as far as possible, you know, very unsentimentally, very ruthlessly, but also um, generously, you know, mm -hmm. go in to try and get as much out of it as you can, both for yourself, but also like if there are five different ways of interpreting a particular phrase and, you know, four of them make the writer seem idiotic and one of them makes them seem, you know, probably pretty smart, even if you don't agree, why not start by thinking that it's the one that makes them seem smart? That's a much more interesting way of reading. But I would put it to you that when you're 16 or 17, you don't go into a text looking for the text's meaning. Yeah. You go in looking for yourself yes. and your own meaning, which is a different... Thing. That's very true, and I am. Talk you're quite right, and I am talking about this as someone very old who has been talking about who's been reading, you know, in a certain way as an adult for a long time. And I think, I guess, I would say, and I would hope that there's no contradiction ultimately, mm. and that, of course, we all find ourselves and and our ideal selves and what we want and so on in all the texts we read. Um, and there is no one way to read a text. Um, and so, you know, if you read this text and you come away thinking just, you know, the world is burning and I want to change it, great, fine, fantastic. Mm. Um, but I don't think that's, I think there are other things you can also do, which are also great. So, you know, and I don't in any way want to suggest that that's not one of the most important things yeah. you can get out of the text. Um, so yeah, I would hope that you can find both yourself and 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 wider programs in in reading. I mean, just moving along a little bit, one of the things that struck me is what it ends with, right? Workers of the world unite. Mm. And right now it seems that worker isn't as central to our identities as woman or yeah. person of color or queer person. Yeah. And of course all of those things are really important, but it feels like in the age of like idpocalypse now, it's just all like idpol that we don't think of ourselves as workers. So why? Why has that become so distanced from how we perceive ourselves? Well, I suppose, I mean, this is a huge debate and and so I'm groping and I don't want to, I don't want to seem glib like I have mm -hmm. simple answers, but I think, I mean, for me, in a, in a sense, it, it's a category error, I think, to, to approach, to, to think of, you know, being a worker or being working class as an identity. That mm -hmm. is precisely part of the, part of the problem. And I should say that I think there's no question that there is there are currents on the left that basically say, you know, all that matters is what class you are and all this rest is frippery. Mm. And this has not helped things at all. And that kind of 
you know, what's sometimes called class first stuff is, is I think, mm-hmm. ultimately very unhelpful. Um, but what I do think, you know, and, and one of the things that I would, I, I, I do argue is that, you know, we have to, uh, you know, try and, and race class, we have to try and gender class mm. and so on. But I don't want that to seem to be a kind of, you know, add the buzzwords together and stir. Mm. Like it's an attempt to say there is something distinct about class, not because it's better, not because it's more important, not but, you know, but it's a different kind of relation to the ongoing making of the world. I shouldn't say different. I retract that. I would say distinct, mm. you know, that it it is at the point of our, of our production of, you know, stuff, services, and in particular profit that we actually kind of constantly remake the world. Now, those are absolutely not separated off from our identities and those identities become constitutively Mm. part of that. Um, But I do think that to suggest that there is something particular about one's place in the kind of capitalist economy Mm. as a wage wage laborer is is not to denigrate the importance of other identities at all. And I'm I'm very concerned about this kind of false dichotomy and this kind of dialogue Mm. of the deaf, you know. Um, I mean, I guess I'm asking a question of how, which is how do you take the relationship of you, the person to capital, and you take it close to your heart? Because gender and race feel close to my heart. And I wish that I could take my relation to capital from this level of the cognitive and put it in this place of feeling and sensitivity and nerve endings and, you know, a kind of more primitive impulse that I feel with the other stuff. I think that's so interesting. And I think that the kind of lived affective reality of class, I think, has changed over over generations. And when you read, for example, the testimonials of workers in, in Russia in 1917, it is very much a kind of an, an identity, which I would say is not you know, it is also a kind of structural position, but it is it is received at those sinews and mm-hmm. nerve endings. I think that the fact that many of us don't feel that way, or you know, I, I don't think is I don't think is just a given. I think it's the mm-hmm. result of a, of a of a whole set of kind of history and politics and economics. Some of it quite a quite a deliberate and conscious. Um, ideological ploy precisely to kind of declass people, to to, to eradicate class uh, consciousness, and partly kind of thrown up by structures of of the way capitalism has worked over over the years. In terms of how people can relate to it, I suppose, I don't think that one can experience things in the blood by fiat. I don't think you can just say, (laughs) right, today I shall wake up and feel like a worker. You know, I think what you can do is two things. One is to kind of try and again with a sort of generous rigor sort of understand what class actually means in these debates and in this text and then sort of try and locate oneself intellectually but there is also a kind of a negative way in which is i think you know i i quote asad Haider in this book mm. and i think his works brilliant and one of the things he says which is a kind of inverted way of in- relating to your thing is you know if you if you don't think in terms of class like a lot of this, his students who he talks to who, who, who talk very much about these other identities mm. and experience life as these other identities. And he says one of the f- simple things he says to them is, you know, at the moment, roughly, you know, say 1% of the world controls 90% of the resources. Would the world be fixed if the 1% who included the 19% of resources were, you know, so many percent queer, so mm. many percent black, so, you know, but we still had that bifurcation of mm. access to resources and power because that would be to sort of have, you know, a ruling class that was a genuine rainbow nation of, um, you mm. know. And I think that as a thought experiment, the idea that you do that 
um, but somehow the world is fixed is self-evidently false. And so essentially there has to be something about the particular shape of kind of power stratification and resource stratification in our in our world that even if you don't experience it in your blood and bones, which is itself important and interesting, is constitutive of our reality and that needs to be got rid of. I mean, you talked about society and politics becoming de-classed, but isn't there also an aspect to which gender and race got de-classed as well? Because totally. I sort of encounter like, you know, particularly people who were my students, right? So that they're that generation below me and they're talking about things like microaggressions and I'm like, yeah. please, like there's a reason there's the word micro in it. And there could be a world where everyone pronounces my name correctly. And I don't think that would stop the fact that Bangladesh is drowning. Right, right. That's beautifully put. I mean, you know, for someone from a different political generation from you, I will say that, I, you know, I, I don't, I really hate a certain type of anti-woke, mm. in inverted commas, I say that with heavy inverted commas, leftist approach to this. And I can only say that for myself, you know, learning some of the terminology like microaggressions and stuff has been absolutely epiphanic, mm. hugely important to me, which isn't to say that I don't think, you know, as, you know, Olufemi Taiwo is talking mm. at the moment, that this can't then be very simply captured and, and, and turned around. That doesn't mean that there's a problem with the terminology or with that way of looking at the world per se. It's like, the, you know, what is done with it, who's using it, who's in power of it and so on. And I think, um, so I think you're right. I mean, uh, if, if you think about, Racing, uh, you know, race and class and gender and class, but also thinking of race and gender and, and other identities as 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 always always already classed in one way or the other. That is also going to enrich the way you you experience those, I think, and that you understand those. And I think that there's a paradox here, which is some of the kind of class, you know, in inverted commas, class first leftists who won't be having with any of this, you know, id poll nonsense. Mm. I think what they end up doing is having a totally unstructural, totally unsystematic, purely identitarian notion of class. Oh, hugely, so, because if you know what a cortado is, then you can't be working class. Right, right. So you saw this a lot with some of the kind of, you know, and let's bracket the idea that there are very, the, the, the truth that there are, you know, really interesting and serious debates to be had about Brexit. And like, it's not a straightforward issue for the left. I think that was true. Nonetheless, what you now get on a lot of the kind of pro-Brexit left, a lot, I'm not saying all, but is this kind of, um, is this kind of, you know, the horny-handed sons and daughters of toil, you know, mm. wanted Brexit, whereas these effete Shoreditch people who drink, mm. you know, lattes and <laughs> nutmeg whatnot, you know, <laughs> so therefore, like, you got the working class want Brexit. And it's like the idea that, that you know, um, or, or, or someone, Michael Portillo said to me the other day that, you know, in, when I was doing an interview with him, that wasn't a name drop, sorry. Um, I mean, well, you know what, if you were going to name drop anybody, Michael Portillo wouldn't be it. <laughs> Fair enough. He said to me, you know, like, Jeff Bezos, um, I can't remember the exact formulation he was using, but essentially like, you know, everyone likes, everyone goes on foreign holidays and likes the same kind of coffee. And it's like this idea that, you know, because you have a certain set of like, you know, uh, cultural bump that mm. you are, that appeals to you, 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 you are or aren't working class. That's the, you know, that's the right wing version. The left wing version is, you know, the horny handed, you know, mushy peas eaters, you know, other working class and the Shoreditch kids are not. And, it's and the existence bullshit. of Tottenham suddenly just like gets nuked off of the face of the political map. It's, it's, it's really insulting and it's really sociologically dunderheaded and it, and it leaves aside, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of the discussions around um, gentrification 
which is, of course, a real and really serious social evil, are actually, you know, revolve around a kind of workerist identitarianism Mm. where it's kind of like, look, this kid may very, I'm sorry, I keep saying kid, but, you know, I feel, you know, this, 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 you know, startup worker may very well like nutmeg in her latte, but you know what, you know, she's on minimum wage, Mm. she's couch surfing, you know, if if she loses her job, she's homeless within a a month, she can't afford, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The idea that somehow she's bourgeois or even middle class because she likes nutmeg in her coffee is, it's it's historically um, uh, it's totally ahistorical, and it has exactly the kind of identitarian politics that they would denounce in others. It does not take class seriously, which is interesting because that's of course what they think they are doing seriously. I mean, I'm I'm trying to deal with this question at the moment in my own work, which is what is the relationship between class and identity? Yeah. And do you need class to have an identity in order to make people feel the thing? And if yeah. so, what does that identity look like? How do you have class is something that we all see ourselves in while retaining a level of cultural distinctiveness and variety. I mean, I don't know. I would think you know this much more than me and I'd be really interested to know. I only just shaped the question. I don't know the answer. (laughs) I mean, I'm not opposed to at all to like to, to sort of having a kind of cultural identification to, to, to class in certain contexts, Mm. you know, like the communist parties, in, for example, in Britain, you know, and in the States, for all the their towing of a line that I think was pretty catastrophic, some of their kind of cultural organizations, um, I thought were, you know, really interesting and do indeed say, you know, among the ways in which you can experience the world as, at this affective level is partly as part of a class collective and so on. And I think given that we are, you know, affective animals, mm. um, we will always be sort of relating to identity on some form or other. And I have no particular problem with saying that one of the ways that could be, particularly if it leads into a kind of politics of being in a class for Mm. itself, is partly around class. I do think it's a category error to relate to it as if it's kind of bred in the bone Mm. or as if it's, you know, um, essentialized or whatever. Um, And I also think it's important to stress that, you know, ultimately I have no objection if that's one of the things that helps people live in the world and and indeed be political. Um, but I, I, I also don't think that therefore, you know, as long as you are relating to the world politically and radically and in terms of, you know, rupture, I, I, I don't think therefore you can't do that if that's not a way of identifying that appeals to you. Um, when you use the word affect, yeah. what do you mean? Because I use affect and vibe ultimately interchangeably. Yeah. Because like a vibe, you kind of know it when you feel it. Well, obviously I can't use the word vibe because it would be like a, you know, a high court judge or something. <laughs> it would be like asking who the Beatles are. Like it would just be embarrassing for everyone. But as I understand from your formulation, yeah, I mean, I think I, <laughs> what is a vibe? Um, I, I mean, I think I agree with you. I think it's, it, it's related for me. There's something about intuition. I'm very mm-hmm. interested in intuition and the problem with intuition is that it's sometimes wrong. It's often wrong. Well, I've never experienced that. Well, interestingly, I think one of the really interesting things about intuition is that it's often right. Mm. And the problem is if someone says, well, there's nothing to intuition because it's because it's often wrong, then you're basically pathologizing all of the kind of the rightness. And I'm not suggest like it would be very foolish to just like safely trust your intuition. But intuition is always, if nothing else, a datum. It's always something to be learned from. And I, I think in this context, you know, it, a lot of this kind of I, I, questions of identity, questions of lived experience, questions of vibe um, 
are indeed, you kind of know it when you feel it. And it would be very difficult to write it down in kind of mathematical formula. You know, the vibe in this room was was X because Y is that, you know, but of the 100 people who were in there, 85 would go, yeah, that was definitely the vibe. And that's not nothing. That's important. Mm. You know? and, and do you think that th this is where art comes into politics and trying to create affect or tap into yeah. it or demonstrate an understanding? Because there are lots of things that I've read where I'm like, I know I'm supposed to like this, yeah. right? It's hitting the notes, but I don't vibe with it. There is some texture or some taste or something which is kind of in the world of the senses and the yeah. physical body for me, which just isn't working. Yeah. I'm very interested in the unsayable. I'm very interested in that which is beyond language. And it feels to me like most of the stuff that we love, when, particularly when it comes to art and so on, we can explain, you know, I don't know, 80% of what we love about it. But there's always going to be a bit that we're just like, and then... And then this, you know, because people say, well, all those elements are also in this other piece. Why don't you like that as much? And it's like, because vibe, because, <laughs> yeah. Be and conversely, as you say, mm. you know, on, you know, there are plenty of, um, uh, you know, I watch a lot of like science fiction films or whatever, and I'm like, I am so a shoe in for this. So why is this leaving mm. me so cold? You know? Um, so yeah, I, I, I do think, and this goes back to bring it right back to that question I was saying about the kind of the non-rational, mm. you know? If your theory of the human consciousness of human agency is that you've got the rational and you've got the irrational, where's all this? Where's your favorite art? You know, what? Why? where are your problematic faves in this? Where are the faves that should be faves but aren't, you know? Mm. And the idea that that stuff, the stuff you're talking about, is somehow epiphenomenal to being human, somehow not that important, mm -hmm. you know, just seems to me to be a deeply impoverished and wrong theory of what being human is, you know? So why for you was the novel a way for you to interrogate other worlds you can build or other political uh, structures or the way things could be or shouldn't be? Why not something like drama, which is of course what Brecht turns to as a communist writer? What yeah. was it about the novel? A lot of, I mean, the truth is I don't, I don't know. Um, but I, and I'm fine with that, you know, according to the sort of paradigm yeah. we're outlaying. Um, but I think I should also say that although I am very much interested in those questions and anyone who does anything creative at any level, the things they're interested in are going to be in their stuff among various other things. It very much was not a political intervention for me to write the novels. That's mm -hmm. not what it's about. And I, I know you're not quite saying that, but, you know, I think I think someone like Brecht in a much more direct way. Mm. It's like, you know, this is a political intervention. I'm going to do it in the form of a drama. You yeah, know? like now, Brecht stages Antigone because he wants it right. to hold a mirror up to Nazi Germany. Right. That's what he wants to do. And I would say in terms of like how we judge art, because one of the problems I have at the moment is I feel like a lot of the discussion about art, particularly on the left, is essentially politics by proxy and predicated on category error. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, what do you mean? If what you mean is I'm going to create this, you, Brecht, <laughs> I'm talking to Brecht now, you know, I'm going to make this amazing piece of work and it's going to hold up the mirror, then sure, we can judge that and we can say this is a really great success or not, you know. If what you mean is I'm going to mobilize the masses, then we have to say Brecht's been an abject failure. Mm. You know, there are most of the people who go and see Brecht plays and love them are not, you know, then building the barricades. This is not a criticism of Brecht. This is about saying, you know, what are, what are the categories of what these things are? So for me, I love fiction. I love 
reading, you know, fiction and fiction about certain things and so on. I and, and therefore I really and I really wanted to do it. Um, and as someone who has a political view of the world, among the various things that are going to be thrown into the rag bag of the books is that political view of the world. But if I want to make a political argument, I. <laughs> I will, write, <laughs> yeah, I will write something that is a, a political argument. And I would make a really, this is absolutely not an argument for saying, well, you know, art's just art and, you know, mm. I'm very pro, uh, you know, cr uh, political readings of art, critical political readings, you know, debating the kind of multifarious meanings of these things and so on. But I am very, very wary of the idea of, 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 of doing politics through doing art. And I'm wary of it partly because I think it doesn't work partly because I think it's a category error about what art is, and partly because, in my experience, it very, very often segues into, to my mind, a really disgusting kind of artistic exceptionalism mm. among artists. You know, we are the real activists. We are the cultural memory of a people, you know. And it's it's unbearable, and it's elitist, and it's disrespectful. You know, I think bakers and plumbers can be cultural <laughs> mem you know, memories just as much as we can, and so on. So... But everyone likes to lend obscene status to the thing they happen to do. See, I don't know that that's true. I think people who work in the cultural field do. Mm. And, you know, I, I love a book. I, you know, I love a film. I love a, an, an album. I'm not saying these things are not good, but I'm not convinced. I think there's a difference between saying, you know, I'm a baker and I'm going to be a fucking great baker and saying, as bakers, we are the true historians and activists. And I don't know that people no, do do that. No, but if you talk to a baker about food, right. and they say what food does, food transcends language. Oh, well, maybe, yeah. Right? You know, you know when something tastes good. Or people tell a story of themselves, which is, you might walk over me and think right. I'm not right. important, but really my thing is the thing. And actually thinking of ourselves as a social organism. Right. Of everyone doing the things which make us human as a totality. Well, I'll take that. That's a really good point. And maybe, maybe the problem then is that where you know a, a civil engineer and a, and, a, and, a, and a dinner worker and a waiter and so on might do that, unlike the work they do, for a whole bundle of reasons to do with uh, commodified culture and so on, the work that cultural um, producers do is validated in a way that theirs isn't, largely grotesquely. Mm. And I, you know, and again, I say this not at all to criticize cultural production um but you know the, when i i think i think if a you know if a plumber says you know i you know i am the true you know memory of 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 of, a, of an oppressed people most people would consider that ridiculous hubris mm. whereas if a writer or an artist says it at least a reasonable number of people will will say mm -mm, that's so true that's so true and i just think it isn't necessarily you know I just wonder if it's because you've got the people in charge of cultural production talking about the importance of their own cultural production and then yeah. it's published. So you kind of get a cheat code for amplifying your own self-aggrandizement. I think that I completely agree with you. I would only add to that that those cheat codes, you know, they're not hermetically sealed. Mm. They do also then kind of reverberate throughout culture and so on. So I mean, this is a long-winded way of answering your question, but like I don't, you know, I, I, I write novels because I really love novels and I like writing them um, and uh, you know but but I didn't and then after the fact I can then start coming up with all kinds of I hope interesting theories about the relationship of different art forms including the novel to bourgeois society mm. and to capitalism and so on and so forth but it is very much a question of 
the theory following the fact rather than you know setting out programmatically i mean so let's get let's get into that next question because you have said that you want to write a book in every genre and i want to know am i going to get like a drawing room novel right you know the way jane austen novels are just about yeah. people going to each other's houses like am i going to get a domestic novel because i kind of want one i mean i i should say, <laughs> I, you, you say you know you have said yeah i did i did say that 20 years ago you know and like and like okay fine i said it i'll take it you know like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna complain about that you know nothing is ever but I forgotten refuse to be held hostage by my past self who knew nothing exactly especially because my past self said it in passing we talk about swagger like mm. you know like that was a great little swaggery line the the kernel of truth in it is i'm really interested in genre as, a, as an engine mm-hmm. and different genres as different engines um I the answer to your question is almost certainly no mm. because as a as a writer in particular and to a lesser extent as a reader the the the, the engine of the kind of domestic mm-hmm. um I don't know what you want to call it the domestic novel um does not particularly fire me up and I'm being very carefully mm. non-sectarian here because I don't want to suggest that there are no great novels of this mm. kind or that I never read them or so on but what I can say is that I can say two things. I can say with certitude, they don't particularly interest me as a writer. And then I can say slightly more cautiously that I think you could start to have an interesting conversation about their limitations in terms of the kind of aesthetic and political mm. nexus in 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 senescent capitalism mm-hmm. and so on. But I would what's, want what's senescent mean? Uh, falling apart, falling you know, apart. Cap- capitalism in a, in a, in a growing catastrophic mm-hmm. crisis. And I think that you know, I think to, to put it very crudely, my suspicion, you know, my feeling is that what you could broadly call the kind of liberal novel was in a fairly is it has been in a fairly parlous state for mm. a fairly for for a fair old while. And I'm certainly not going to say that there are no exceptions to that, but I think I probably would cautiously say I suspect that is not coincidence. And I suspect that one could start to draw certain analytical reasons as to why that might be. I mean, the thing about engines is that you can hijack them. Right, right? yes. And I suppose I'm interested in, do certain genres do certain things? And you might hijack them, but you can't do the other thing very well. So there's a reason why there are so many communists and leftists who are interested in speculative fiction and sci-fi because that is a means by which you imagine a world which isn't here. And there is a reason why conservatives of both the big and the small C variety love a marriage novel. Um, And it's because it's about social reproduction and the continuation of the thing that came before, essentially. You know, is there a way in which genre resists our hijacking? Um. I think I would, you can tell I'm being very tentative and cautious mm. about this. And it's not because I'm trying not I'm to- I'm not tra- trying to get you to like beef Sally Rooney, by the way. <laughs> I'm fascinated by Sally Rooney. And I and I really I really respect Sally Rooney as someone who, you know, her, 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 her work is not my kind of thing. And mm. I read it with great sort of respectful interest. It's, it's, it's not my milieu, but I, I read it with great respectful interest, not least because she seems to me to be someone wrestling with exactly this kind of mm. problem. Um, and and also someone who is very open to the idea of like maybe this is on a hiding to nothing, but the best thing we can do is to do a kind of Beckett thing and fail better. Mm. And I I think that's great. I think I am very cautious of the kind of special pleading that can follow the kind of argument that you're making um, about like you know 
And again, I know that you're not saying this, but some I people- I might be though. Well, you know, science fiction is, you know, the radical genre. It's like, yeah. this is absolute fucking twaddle, you know, <laughs> or, you know, or like, you know, all, you know, all, all drawing room comedies are, you know, just deeply and inherently reactionary. It's like, it's just nonsense. I think on a, I think I would, I would take a sort of tentative soft version of what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I think that, I think that the way, you know, t- you're talking about hacking engines, I think it is true that certain engines have a kind of elective affinity to certain kinds of jobs. Mm-hmm. So it is really interesting to me that so many people who are interested in sort of sociological views of the world, you know, write crime novels. And crime mm. has a very particular kind of political iteration um, because of the way it, you know, because of the way you have to experience the world through a crime novel. Um, I think it's definitely also, you know, at a kind of gesture, you know, one can gesture to the fact that a lot of leftists are very interested in science fiction and so on and and say, well, there may well be something there. But I would want to I would want to caution about A, any kind of sweeping statements, and B, what sometimes follows from that observation because you can accept the observation but then what can sometimes follow from it is like you know therefore you know science for you know, socialists should be into science fiction or science fiction is inherently radical or whatever and i just think that's just absolute nonsense so i think in a way I, you know to the extent that what you're talking about is a kind of very general sort of sociological tendencies i would say yeah there's something to be investigated here uh, but when i start to see people talk about like you know deploying science which a lot of people do in totally good faith you know deploying science fiction for social activism i was like i think this is a mistake i think it's a category error now if this helps you get up in the morning if this helps you get through your day if this is one of the ways you want to be a radical knock yourself out i don't stand in the way of that at all and i wish you love and luck but if what you think is you know this is the way to be an activist and this is the way to bring people into like i just think this is a category error I suppose one of the reasons why I'm interested in this is deeply personal and it's to do with what I feel the domestic novel has done, which is have this laser focus and it's Mm. claustrophobic. It is socially claustrophobic and it resembles a world that I live in. And it makes me think about, so how do you produce social change within extremely constrained circumstances? And sometimes I read sci-fi and go, oh, but this is the cheat code. You just got there and it's radically different. Um, So I guess I want to talk about the relationship between ideas and dreaming and social change. Do you nurture the impulse to dream and and, and formulate something that is radically altered because that helps you get to this world that you want? Or is there something about this horrible, suffocating drawing room where women have to get married, otherwise they're destitute, because that is telling you something about where you are and the the jail you have to break out of? Yes. <laughs> oh, that's not really an either or question. I was well, just that's, talking I know. about my feelings. I, I, I know, but this is this is why, I, you know, I mean, I, I, I yeah, I mean... I- yeah, one can answer this on a kind of individual level. You know, mm-hmm. yes, I find it really interesting to read Ursula Le Guin and it makes me think about different models of gender and so on and so forth. But I can also tell you, for a matter of fact, that plenty of deeply intelligent, deeply reactionary people think Ursula Le Guin is a genius and know perfectly well what her politics are, you know, and are interested in the gender politics in the books. But it doesn't make them radicals. Um, 
And I think part of the problem with this, sorry, I'm kind of buzzing all over the place. Go for it. it. One of the problems with, with I, again, I don't say you're saying this. One of the problems with the way this Not can- Not that I might be saying something dumb and I am very no, open no, to the possibility. I think I, this thing about politics by proxy, I think you're being very careful, but I think some people aren't so careful. And I think one of the problems with the sort of politics by proxy approach to art is the idea that any piece of cultural production, any piece of art, is essentially that you can decode it politically. And at its crudest, you say, well, this is what it means, and it's pro it's progressive, or this is what it means, and it's reactionary. Mm. And it's like all, I think everything basically, but certainly art, which is which is not reducible to a series of like formula, is always contradictory. And it doesn't mean it's always gonna be equally contradictory. It doesn't mean that you can never draw conclusions. But you know, if you say, um, you know the, and again, I know you're not saying this. If you say, you know, the, the, you know, there is a problem with the domestic novel, which is that it has this completely uh, hermetically sealed everyday life, and there's no sense of alternative. But then, you know, therefore it's reactionary. But then you can come along and say, you know, what some of the best domestic novels, what they do is show how, in the incredibly constrained gendered reality, you know, actually these kind of enormous psychodramas play out in, you know, in ways that are like, I mean, it's not quite a normal domestic novel. But I think about, you know, Clarice Lispector's work. Some mm. of them, I mean. I mean, this kind of kind of visionary explosion of the sublime taking place and you know like at the, at the entrance to a kitchen you know or the entrance to a to a um to a bedroom um so it, it can pull both ways similarly i'm hugely resistant to the idea that in any kind of um programmatic way science fiction is useful to the progressive because it allows you to like think about what alternative worlds would be like because i think the moment we start thinking about uh our depicted utopias as blueprints we're on a desperate hiding to nothing i think that's really like a mm. bad way of approaching it but in the sense that there is something about the idea of not taking re you know re really existing reality as, as an immutable fact. Mm. Yeah, there is certainly something about that which can be speculative, which can be kind of, you know, um, imaginatively uh, exciting. And it, I don't think it's a coincidence that that dovetails with a lot of a lot of radicals. I mean, so I just, I finished reading Embassy Town a few weeks ago, and I'm really mad at you, by the way, for what you did to my good sis rooftop. Um, I was just like, oh, I'm now crying over this like insect alien thing, which shares oh. no, real coordinates with me and I was really really mad at you for that oh, my work here is done oh I was just like you did her dirty you did rooftops so dirty um, it's a cruel world Ash did, no you're, you're, you're a cruel man you're a cruel man um, but one of the things that it really got me thinking about is how we imagine difference and here yeah. I'm not just talking about the different world I'm really talking about encountering the other yeah. and how can you make an other so different from yeah. us and yet we feel this pull this sense of affinity and closeness and shared experience that i am crying over an insect alien thing and it's not just because i'm at a certain spoke in my hormonal cycle so could you maybe talk to me a little bit about that process of imagining difference for yeah. you because i don't know how you do it i mean i think it's i think it's all a trick and i i mean that because I think it's definitionally impossible for a human being to imagine something genuinely non-human. I think that I think definitionally you can't do that. Like you're always thinking through your humanness. So what I think, you know, and and then you've got like, if you want to talk artistically, you've got like things like Star Wars or Star Trek, which just kind of lean into this by basically. And I'm, I'm not saying this as a hater. Like one of the ways to do this is just say basically all your aliens 
are people in rubber masks, but basically they're humans. Or every planet you encounter is America. Right. Okay. And, you know, we can have our political critique of that, but like in terms of the representation of difference, it's essentially saying there is no difference. There's cultural difference, but there's no like ontological difference. Mm -hmm. There's no, you know. And then you've got those um, books and films and, and so on. Um, of which I hope Embassy Town is one, which which try to say, okay, let's actually see how far we can get towards depicting something that is truly non-human. Now, for me, as I say, you will always fail because you literally can't. But, you know, again, you can fail and then you can also fail better. So it seems to me that anything that does that kind of um, representation of the, of, of, of the non-human, or I would even say in a certain sense, the non-existent is... Um, is going the best it can do is fail better and luckily for us failing better can sometimes be absolutely wonderful i think this has a really important political corollary actually and without making any claims about science fiction or whatever as a as a as a as a, as a radical form this is one of the reasons that i'm at base opposed to the idea of you know the depiction it goes <laughs> all the way back to this you know opposed to the the idea of saying you know we should have communism and this is what it'll look like. Mm. Because it seems to me, if you take seriously rupture, if you take seriously the idea that capitalism is a totality, capitalism conditions everything around us. It doesn't mean it's seamless, doesn't mean we can't fight it, but it is total. Mm. And one of the things we're trying to do, if we, are, if we see it as a predatory, inhuman, monstrous system, which I do, is we're trying to break from it and according to the program that I, you know, critically defend in here, that necessitates a rupture. You can't mm. reform it ultimately. You can make it better or worse, but you can't ultimately reform it. So you're creating a rupture. And the thing about a rupture is that a rupture will change not just, you know, everything around us, but the us who perform mm. the rupture. And you can't think about what a post-rupture world will be like with any rigor because we're not there. And so I'm all for like utopias and ideas and like maybe we do this, maybe we do this, maybe we do this. But I think that it's, I think that it, it, it is to disrespect the scale of the kind of psychic and spiritual and human rupture to say that we could predict what that would be like. All we need to do to proceed with it as a project is to say that there is a reasonable fighting chance that it would be less terrible than this fucking shit, mm. you know, but, um, you know, and, and I'm all for thought experiments, but I'm heavily opposed to uh, sort of blueprints and proposals. Mm. So there's politics and fiction, which we've just talked about. But there's also fiction in politics. And mm. that is something which is in the manifesto. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, the manifesto is this deeply gothic yeah. text. And there are other ways in which fantasy and almost a kind of Tolkien legendarium inflects the green movement in some ways. Um, there are all sorts of ways in which, um, you know, sex positive writing, I think, is inflected by some of the tropes of pornography, yeah. right? You find fiction everywhere you look in politics. Yeah. Is that a reason to be skeptical of some political text? Because actually, that fiction is playing something of a trick on us and it's trying to take us towards like the bad utopia. I mean, yes, I think I think I think your formulation of skeptical is probably right in the sense that I I kind of suspect that, you know, as as, you know, signifying monkeys, we're not going to be able to get rid of these things. Mm. Um, and I don't want to. I don't you know, we are 
storytelling animals. Now, one of the things that one hears a lot is, you know, about how great that is. Um, and people talk about, you know, the healing power of stories and so on. And this always seems to me to be a real hostage to fortune because just because humans do tend to have a kind of narrative consciousness, whether or not you think it's trans-historical, doesn't follow in the slightest that that's a good thing. Um, it, it may be it may be neutral or it may mm. be a tragic fact of us that we constantly reduce things to narratives, mm. you know. So I'm not presuming that that's a good thing. What I am saying is that I think it is a thing and, um, and you know, we are where we are. And, um, and so the, the fact that we're going to kind of sort of uh, lay narratives over our politics and so on, I think to a degree is inevitable. But I think skepticism uh, and caution are, are probably about as, as good as we can do at sort of um, reading those narratives and being critical of them. You talk about some of the, you know, the kind of the, some of the sort of Tolkien-esque narratives in some of the, the Green Movement or whatever. Um, and I don't think that this, you know, if if we see certain types of narratives, I think it's perfectly legitimate to sort of say, you know, an occulted logic here is this, mm. and this is why I am uneasy with this. And are you even aware of this? You know, um, I mean, maybe can I invite you to explain mm. that a bit more because for lots of people watching this, they're like. What's fucking wrong with Tolkien? I love Viggo Mortensen. Um, like, what's what's the yeah. problem with saying that the land will be renewed once you get rid of the bad races? Yeah. Well, I mean, I you know, I, I many years ago, I, I I had a whole you know, I, I I sort of went on record being very rude about Tolkien, and again, talking of kind of youthful swagger. Like, I'm not interested in doing that. I, I you know, there's plenty of stuff about it that I that I up to a point enjoy, and so on and so forth. But I think. This is where a kind of political reading of texts comes in. So that if you, you know, even if you really enjoy certain texts, like you know, you think Tolkien is a, you know, is a wonderful lyrical writer, or whatever, um, then there is, it seems to me, you know, a, a certain type of politics embedded in the depiction of, you know, Hobbiton or whatever, you know, mm. and the idea of the Shire and this kind of thing. And you don't get any Bangladeshi elves. You, this is what I worked out. I, well, except now you do in the TV series and people are very unhappy, you know. <laughs> um, you know, and, and you know, the films, the depiction of the, you know, the sort of vaguely disguised um, sort of Turks and, and sword, oh you know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and there's a certain kind of, ostentatious philistinism on the right when you say or like the trade the trade delegation in you know the in the star wars movies that are like thinly veiled japanese people mm. and you sort of say well this is obviously a riff on this and they're like what they're aliens what are you even talking about? and it's totally unconvincing so i think to the extent that you're kind of um, engaging with and talking about those stories and saying like this, this is the way this is playing out politically and sometimes okay, I'll give you an example like one of the things that I really like is there is this notion that if you so we're sort of conflating different categories here but whatever let's like, go for it alright so there is this notion that like you know if you sort of you know politically critique a story you know you're just being this humorless killjoy and so on and a, I mean, I have no problem with humorless killjoy, but it, you know, it depends on the story that you're critiquing and so on. Man, you have been hanging out with, with Richard Seymour. <laughs> as much as I can. Um, but also, again, with this kind of learned and ostentatious philistinism, because there is also a very honorable tradition of writers having these, you know, semi-hidden stories pointed out to them and going, oh shit. Mm. So, you know, now I know, for example, like if we talk about, um, you know, Roald Dahl, now, Roald Dahl, anti-Semite, no one is here to defend his position, you know, on that. Okay, let me be very clear about that. What is also the case is that, you know, the original um, depiction of the Oompa Loompas mm. in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, 
these were, quote, pygmies. Mm. And then a delegation from, as I recall, the NAACP came to Roald Dahl and said, this is really racist and this is really problematic. And this is something that is, you know, that, you know, that all, you know, our, our kids are reading and it's, mm. you know, and he listened and he said, shit, point. So he changed them and he made them into little blue things or whatever they are. Now, if you kind of listen to the culture warriors, you know, any notion of like, I even reading narratives politically, let alone changing them is like, you know, to sort of piss on great culture mm. and so on. And, I'm really interested in, you know, what about the writers who have, or, and artists and so on, who have these subtext pointed out to them and who are, who are troubled by it. And then I'm not saying it's their duty to change them. I mean, I can see, a, I can see an argument for people saying, well, actually, I'm going to stick with this, but I'm hearing you, whatever. Like, mm. that, bracket that. But, you know, um, it wasn't her, but Enid Blyton's daughters, who were the kind of, you know, protectors of her memory, you know, and I'm, I'm not here to fly a flag for Enid Blyton, although I love her stuff. Um, <laughs> Other than like, I'm part of the UDL, the Enid Defence League, like, paid they, up. Well, I find it very moving that like, you know, her daughters, who were hardly political radicals in, I think, the early 80s, took the gollywog out because mm. they were like, mm, you know, Britain's changing and we don't like the idea of, you know, um, of, of little kids of different backgrounds feeling like we're making fun of them. We go you never hear this in the mm. stories of the Daily Fucking Mail talking about, you know, culture warriors, this and the other. And again, this is not to say this is what everyone should do. It is to say how nice it would be to have a non- deliberately stupid discussion about the politics of narratives. In this country, you're dreaming. I, I want to sort of get into the the problematic subtext because you have this interest in hybridity and yeah. monsters and throughout literature, monsters and hybrids are a vehicle for something else. So yeah. there's the uh, Franco Moretti reading mm. of Dracula, where really yeah. you're talking about this kind of horrific, parasitic remain of feudalism yeah. that, you know, industrialization should have gotten rid of. Um, you've got ideas around like succubi being women with horrendous sexual appetites. Yeah. So how do you write monsters in a way which consciously engages with some of these histories, but also puts some distance between it and maybe finds something new? Or is the task of doing something new like a stupid way to think about it? No, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not the cops. I'm not here to tell people what they have to do. I can only say what, you know, mm. but I mean, it seems to me one thing is that, you know, as I've said, I think, you know, any any text, any cultural figure is always going to be amb ambiguous and ambivalent. Ambivalent is probably a better phrase than ambiguous in the sense that, you know, for every monster that, you know, includes a, a kind of, um, you know, a, a, a sort of horror of the of the of the dark skinned other, that very self same monster, sometimes in that same text is kind of secretly admirable for the way it takes mm. no shit. Like, is this racist or not? Yes. <laughs> you know, um, so. Again, I would caution against the reductive reading that, you know, this is bad and this is good. But I do, I do absolutely feel that like, you know, I think it is, I think it is totally appropriate to sort of, uh, to sort of like, if you like, kind of check, have, have, you know, don't just think, well, you know, I'm writing about a succubus and I don't think women are sexual predators, ergo it's fine. Like mm. when you sit in the chair, you're sitting there with, with culture with you. So maybe have a think about it. And and I think a lot of people are doing exactly that. Now, at its worst, that can then, at its worst, I suppose, artistically, that can then lead to the kind of text where in the anxiety to desperately get rid of any of that ambivalence and only have a good monster, mm. you know, it ends up with this very clunky text, 
obviously not just science fiction or fantasy or whatever, you know, the, the sort of, you know, the desperate desire to do something that I think can't and shouldn't be done, which is mm. to extract ambivalence from, from, from art. Um, but at its best, what you certainly can do is say, you know, we will, to put it very, very crudely, you know, we will no longer have gollywogs in our kids' mm. books. Because because even if you want to make a case, as some people have, including some people of color that are not stupid cases and that are interesting, that actually you can subvert the figure of the gollywog and you can make it a powerful figure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Nine times out of 10, why don't we not? Mm. You know? Um, so yes, I, th I, think, I think simply being aware, I mean, the only thing I can say is anytime you write anything, fiction, nonfiction, genre, non-genre, anything, poetry, whatever, you're not alone in the chair, even if you're alone in the room. You know, the whole of fucking society and history is in there with you. And it, it it's not a bad thing to just be aware of that. And that doesn't mean self-flagellating, but it just means, you know, not taking these things for granted that 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 that, 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 that there, there aren't unconsciouses to the things that you yourself are bringing to the table. So the newest innovation in art is supposed to be the NFT. And there was a utopian promise of blockchain. It was supposed to decentralize everything. Yeah. And suddenly all it's doing is just shifting money from late to early adopters. Why hasn't technology like blockchain heralded in a new era of creativity? Why am I looking at these ugly fucking monkeys all the time? I mean, you know, I... I I think, I mean, culture, you know, 99% of culture under capitalism is crap, right? Um, and then of the 1% that isn't crap, uh, you know, it, it is, of course, you know, riddled and riven with, you know, contradictions and crap bits and so on and so forth. And, and I suppose to some extent, you know, um, uh, NFT is going to be like anything else. Like, I think it would be a hostage to fortune to say there are no interesting NFTs out there. I've never seen any, but I'm not going to sit here and say it doesn't exist. Um, I do, I, I think... My, you know, I may be misunderstanding what you're saying, but my sense is that most of the, um, you know, the the innovations in form that come along through, you know, um, well, through innovations in form, through innovations in, in 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 technology, through innovations in infrastructure, you know, will always throw up new um, forms of art and so on. And some of them will be interesting, and some of them will be less interesting, and so on. But I feel like, you know, they are all overwhelmingly structured by the fact that they're existing within capitalism and capitalism is you know and I don't just say this as a kind of you know swaggery sneer I say it after you know many many decades of thoughtful you know analysis and so on and I say it in here capitalism is a fucking disaster and an absolute you know and a disaster for among many other things human creativity so it would be asking it would be asking a lot for you know, we poor, you know, sort of um, constrained people under this awful system that structurally always puts profit over any kind of human need, including creative human need, to do anything than find little glimmers of interstitial joy and the creativity in anything we do. So in a sense, it's a fucking miracle any art is good, you know? Um, so yeah, so I, you know, I, I, I'm certainly not opposed to kind of formal innovations in, you know, new, new, new ways of doing art, you know. Um, some of them I'm skeptical of like there's always a lot of excitement i remember when the kind of non-linear hyperlink novel was 
a thing that people were very excited about. And I was never excited about it. And I thought like, that doesn't appeal to me and I will be surprised if it appeals to most people. And I think broadly speaking, I was right, but I'm wrong about loads and loads of things. But in terms of, in terms of baseline quality, any, any kind of new art that comes along is gonna come along in the context of all this shit. So how, mm. how, how could it be other than constrained by that? Particularly, I think, in the context of something like NFTs, where it is so inextricable from the most vulgarian and crass notion of accumulation and profit. Like, I mean, not all not all relations to accumulation and profit are equal, and some are more unabashed, more uh, unmediated, and more kind of philistinely um, Promethean than others. And so, it is no surprise. It would be no surprise to me if NFTs were particularly shit artistically. I mean, is the internet in some ways one of Mark Fisher's lost futures? It has this utopian promise, then Web 3.0 just delivers an even more unstable and extractive and speculative yeah. form of currency. I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm out of my comfort zone here because I'm I'm certainly not a Luddite, but I don't know much about blockchain. It doesn't interest me very much, I, you know, um, uh, but certainly, I, I mean, at a, as a, at, a, at a general level, I, I I just think, you know, you talk about lost futures and, you know, paths not taken and so on. Like, this goes back to something we were talking about, about capitalism as a totality. Like, there is an enormous, if you like, to put it loosely, utopian potential in the internet. There's also a utopian potential in a hammer. There's utopian potential in clay. There's utopian potential in bread, you know. Like, the utopian potential in all those things, which when we're lucky, we see in a glimmer of creativity or we see in, you know, a beautiful political intervention or whatever. Um, but they are, at a structural level, vastly less strong than the system in which they exist. So I think that's my way of saying yes about the internet, but no more or less so than lots of other things. I suppose my last question is, why don't we want better for ourselves and for others? Why can't our love for our neighbors, our community, our species, the beings with whom we don't share a species category, why isn't that enough to make us do things? I mean, this goes back to this question of consciousness for me, this model of consciousness that I'm constantly wrestling with, which has a strong pedigree on the left, this sort of ultra-rationalism. Um, and, and I always want to be very careful to reiterate that I'm not defending irrationalism. I'm interested in tapping the non-rational. It feels to me like, you know, one of the things humans are very complicated animals and they're very contradictory animals and as as i, I said, see you've met my mother oh i see you've met my mother i see <laughs> i've met everyone's mother and father and son and daughter and brother and sister you know i i feel like you know um we're all very contradictory and the idea of like i think there is a you know on the right to put it very crudely there is a kind of position on the right, which is that humans are fundamentally bad and they need to be, you know, controlled and they need to be, you know, kept under the thumb and they need to be, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then there is a position on the on, on the left, which is that humans are fundamentally good and you get rid of all the all the shit and everything will be fine. Now, this is unfalsifiable, who knows? I hope that the left position is good. But frankly, I think as usually put, 
it's tremendously simplistic. It feels to me much more likely that humans are enormously protean. We are enormously changeable. We are enormously plastic. We are capable of the most wonderful and beautiful things and the most unspeakable depredations. And suggesting that one of those is more human or more like more really human than the, than the other is simply absurd. And I don't think you can get at that with the idea of rationalism and irrationalism. I think that's always too crude. I think, um, you know, I'm I'm really interested in, like, this is where I think some psychoanalytical things can come in. Um, it seems to me that anyone trying to make sense of, I, I would say probably capitalism forever, but certainly capitalism in the last few years, has to start accommodating the idea of structural sadism structural masochism and broadly speaking what freud called the death drive mm -hmm. like and the if you try to kind of create a kind of rational kind of capitalist accumulative argument for some of the kind of social phenomena we see today like what well i think the surplus sadism we see in um uh in in for example some kind of extractive capital i can give you an example and I'm going back a bit deliberately because, you know, when you see like Trump and he's like, you know, really like the Democrats put kids in cages, but they don't want to talk about mm. it. Trump says, put the kids in cages. Mm. Woo, woo, woo. So this is not a defense of the Democrats. Mm. It's about saying, you know, the kind of performative sadism becomes part of the politics. Mm. But this doesn't start with Trump. It goes way back. And it's not only on the kind of Republican right, although I think they glory in it in a way mm. that um, other um, political currents don't so much. You know, I remember when Sarah Palin was standing. Mm. Um, and there was an extraordinary thing where like she was saying, you know, all these effete Democrats, they don't want to like drill for oil. Um, uh, but we, we we know that we have to drill for oil. And then she started this, this chant of like drill, baby, drill. Yeah. Now to me, that was a real turning point in social sadism because you can totally imagine a right winger in the 50s or the 60s or whatever, again, not saying social sadism didn't exist back then, but different modulations, saying whether we like it or not, we have to drill for oil because we need it for our energy needs and this is the rational thing for our country to do. But to make a kind of thinly veiled raping Gaia joke, mm. deliberately to whip up a kind of violent group of people about like the glory in the sort of, I think, implied cruelty of this verb mm. was to me a kind of ostentatious sadism. Um, which then got developed over the years into a much more extreme version. Um, and I think this is inextricable from, from a kind of self-hatred and death drive and masochism. So you end up, which, which to be clear, capitalism hugely feeds into. This isn't just a kind of innate thing mm. in history and humans are just terrible. But, you know, uh, Tad DeLay, who I draw on quite a lot in this book, who's a very brilliant sort of left psychoanalyst and so on, talks about people who are, you know, on on Medicare or Medicaid in the States and who will, you know, eagerly vote against it, including it, which will kill them, but on the sense that that's stopping someone else getting something. Mm. And this is both sadism and masochism completely inextricably. I call that negative solidarity. Negative it's solidarity. the opposite of solidarity. Exactly. And 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 I think, I mean, I think that, the, that we've always seen elements of this. And historically, of course, it was hugely um, pushed onto like non-white people and onto the kind of, you know, the, the despised others of colonialism and so on. But it was never, you know, those were never its only boundaries. And, 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 and in a sense, this, you know, this is now becoming, A, I think, much more openly diffuse and much more um, celebrated you know um and i think 
so it's not a question of saying that humans are foul. It's a question of saying that humans are, you know, enormously various and changeable and that we live in a system which um, is particularly feeding um, those 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 elements of negative solidarity mm -hmm. and indeed sadism that I think are so catastrophic. Answer this question how you want. Okay. It can be where you are right now or where you think um, the left should be in general, but yeah. it's not going to be one of your like, well, yes, answers. I'm just ruling it out. What do you think is the most powerful motivator for people to seek out change? Is it love for the thing which could be different or is it hatred for the thing that you have now? I... I will answer this for myself and I will say, you know, I I understand that, you know, it, it might seem pusillanimous to like refuse to make a general answer about this, but I think it's really important not to make a general answer about this. I think different people are mobilized politically by different things. And I think I think that's great. And I think that what I want is a kind of large tendency of radicals and leftists who are motivated by all kinds of different things and who learn from each other's motivations and so on and so forth. For me, I mean, love and hate are inextricable. But one of the reasons that I end the book on a kind of rumination on hate, and one of the reasons I defend a certain kind of political hate, is partly because it is a deeply pathologized emotion mm. and one has one is given the sense that if one hates anything if one hates anything one is doing something wrong politically mm. and and ethically and i next stop murder right and i i strongly contest that i contest that on the grounds that hate is inevitable for many of us and that it is really unhelpful to pathologize inevitable emotions and i would go further and say that for myself I feel myself getting more, I mean, I've, always, I've been political for many, many years, but I feel more and more political at the moment and over the last few years. And what for me has been a very radicalizing force is a kind of growing and glowing hatred for this system. So if someone is motivated to change the world out of love for what they want and for the people they love, um, as, as I am too, but if that's their prime motivation, I'm so delighted. Um, if someone is motivated by anger, fine, by frustration, by, you know, anything. But for me, the two, because there's two, the two things that motivate me most, more than anything politically. One is just hatred for the idea that this is as, this is as good as it gets and, and for what this does. And the other is that emotion that the, the Germans call Sensucht, which is this kind of desperate yearning for something that you can't put into words mm. and for me those two are inextricable and then what keep me going china thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me this broadcast is brought to you by navara media go to navaramedia.com support In the 1970s, the Provisional IRA was in the early days of its armed campaign to end British rule on the island of Ireland. In the United States, a small group of activists began organizing on their behalf. They called themselves the Irish Northern Aid Committee. 
Norid. And they were looking for a fight. War is always violence. And if that's the only way, and history tells us it's the only way to get freedom, then it must be war. My name is Nate Levy, and I'm the host of Foreign Agent, a podcast about the connection between ordinary Irish Americans and a revolutionary socialist guerrilla group. It was a tenuous and unlikely coalition, but it shaped the troubles in Northern Ireland and helped to mold contemporary Irish American identity. This is a story that travels back and forth across the Atlantic over three decades of conflict. And in six episodes, Foreign Agent will explore how regular Americans became militant advocates for the cause of Irish freedom. Whether they have dust on their knees from coming from mass or not, they're trying to acquire Uzi machine guns and surface-to-air missiles to shoot down helicopters. We'll hear directly from some of the people who provided military and financial support to the Irish Republican Army. We'll follow the guns and the money from South Boston and the Bronx. And we'll also meet people who wrote letters, walked the picket lines, and built Irish Northern Aid into a nationwide organization. Somebody would drive a flatbed truck down into Manhattan. We would be announcing the demonstration in and out through the Bronx before coming down to outside the British consulate. We had thousands of people out of those demonstrations. And we'll see that at every step of the way, the U.S. government tried to shut them down. We will do everything we possibly can to prevent American citizens' assistance to the terrorists in Ireland. We'll meet the teetotaler and life insurance actuary who was the public face of Irish Northern Aid. We'll spend time with the communist armored truck driver who ran thousands of guns out of his small apartment in Brooklyn. And we'll tell the wild court case that made them into heroes of the Irish Republican movement. An eight-week-long gun smuggling trial in New York's Brooklyn federal court went to the jury today. The question to be answered, were the defendants working for the IRA or the CIA? It is not often that one has the opportunity to kick the shit out of the CIA, the FBI, the State Department, MI5, and MI6, all at one time. We had it, and we did it. Irish Northern Aid fused support for an anti-colonial struggle with white American identity politics. And throughout it all, they kept a coalition of left and right-wing tendencies together by orienting their work around the principle of armed struggle. They took militant Irish nationalism from the bars in the Bronx into the highest reaches of the American state. And for almost three decades, Norid went punch for punch with the British, Irish, and U.S. governments. And they left their mark on the peace agreement that ended the war. Irish America changed U.S. foreign policy. Irish America changed British policy. This is the story of the Troubles, as seen through American eyes. Foreign Agent from Navarra Media is available wherever you get your podcasts.